Zeus taunts Hera with possibly supporting the truce and ending the Trojan War. Amongst the bickering, Zeus reveals that he esteems Troy more than any other city, and its destruction is actually a gift to Hera by Zeus of his own free will. Moreover, Zeus' jests of supporting the truce seems to be a bit of theater given his promise to Thetis. Nonetheless, he sends Athena to do two things. First, ensure the Trojans break the truce, Mm -hmm. and second, that the Trojans trample the Argives in their triumph. Athena successfully tempts the Trojan archer Pandarus, who seems unable to perceive the goddess for who she is. Poor Pandarus. Pandarus. I I mean, that guy... It doesn't turn out well for him. We'll find out. Into shooting Menelaus, Athena deflects the arrow into a non-mortal wound, and Agamemnon, his brother, calls for the healer, Machion, son of Asclepius, the god of medicine. No way I could have pronounced that right the first time. Well done. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's no way. If that was even correct. Asclepius? Asclepius. Asclepius. You just say it quickly and with confidence, and it works out. With a truce broken by the Trojans, with no observable attempt by Hector or anyone else to defuse the situation, Agamemnon marshals his chieftains for war. The armies clash and various conflicts are recorded. The book ends with Apollo encouraging the Trojans and Athena the Greeks, while the Edict of Zeus for the Trojans to triumph, at least temporarily, remains pending. Welcome to Ascend, the Great Books Podcast. Welcome back. Deacon, it's, we're going to book four today. Book four. Uh, it's been awesome to hear from other people who have started reading with us and like developing small groups and uh, asking us questions about the, you know different um, just things that they can utilize to be able to read the book with, how to form the small groups. You know, I, it just goes to show you that there are definitely people out there that are that are hungry reading good books they just don't know where to start so it's really cool to, to hear from them and be able to to help them if they go to thegreatbookspodcast.com sweet url um thegreatbookspodcast.com we, we're updating that on a weekly basis so they can get a bunch of different information whether it be you know stuff about the great books itself about the iliad about homer i mean there's we have we're continually yeah, growing all kinds of good stuff uh, the library so it's really cool if you uh have uh, a great great books group that you you guys are doing then send us a picture you know tag us on 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 social media we'd love to see it and share it and that'd be wonderful uh you know promote it to other people because the idea is going to be like you know as we go through homer going through the iliad gonna go through the odyssey as we're going through this the idea is, is is in hopes that other people will do the exact same thing right and read with us and then you know continue to to learn about it to where we can pass it on to the next generation like right. i can't give this to my kids, if I don't if I don't read it myself, so yeah, it's um, amazing how many people in our current Sunday Great Books group were motivated originally to do there, so they can understand the Great Books before their children become of age. Then they can pass that down. And I mean, I'm that, I'm one of them, right? You know, mm-hmm. I realized really quickly, like if I if I want to uh, teach my kids and have you know order their appetites towards the true, the good, and the beautiful, uh, I need to I need to be reading these things myself. Yeah, it is interesting, just you know, mainly being on Twitter. How many times if I tweet about the great books or whatever, like here's what I'm reading because I try and read 
you know, something every morning and something every evening. And usually that's the fodder for, you know, whatever I'm posting on social media. Mm -hmm. Like how many people are just asking questions like, where do I start? How can I start? And I mean, that's really the kind of the impetus behind this entire podcast, right? Right. Is to how do we help these people um, start? Because it is kind of daunting, like just pick up the Iliad. And also it's like, it's unfortunate that the first book in most great book series is not like a small work. It's like, well, let's see how this works out, et cetera. It's like, no, here's, here's at like minimum, I would say six months right, of reading, if you're going to read it well and, and be attentive. So I think a lot of this is to help people through that process. I mean, even the guide, like if you if you look at our guide that we provide, it's in a question-answer format, right? which is, we kind of forget, but the question-answer is the most natural way that we learn, right? Mm-hmm. It's having a, it's like us right here, right? We're having a dialogue. We ask each other questions. We figure this out. So the nice thing is that one of the reasons it's presented like that, as opposed to like a lecture or just like a flat text, is because then you can use it to help facilitate small groups, Right. right. So you, you could read it together. You can listen to the podcast, do as you will. And then you can kind of just ask the question and have that discussion and then judge that discussion according to like what we have in the guide. And that also helps uh, people to sharpen their own attentiveness and observations of the text. Like, oh, yeah, I saw that. That was really good. Or, oh, no, I didn't see this. Or, right. you know, maybe you have a different perspective. And so it allows, I think, a growth and a maturation of your own ability to read great texts. Now, would you say, like, for me, coming into this since I had not read it before, um, it's a huge benefit to, to be able to read it with other people, right? Because I'm getting new insights, like you, like you were just saying. Um, but do you find it beneficial on your end, even though you've read the Iliad, uh, to read it in a small group? Like, is there things that still come up on your end? Because I can, I can imagine a lot of people out there who may have already read the Iliad and be like, no, I'm good, I've already read this, I've already, you know, I've already checked that box. Would you recommend them getting into small groups and reading? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think off the bat, I think we have to admit that Homer is the teacher, mm-hmm. right? So Homer is the one that's teaching. And so even if I'm like somewhat familiar with the text, I've read it before, et cetera, like really at the end of the day, all, all that I am is simply a student that's like more familiar with the material, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not the teacher. I'm not the master. I think that, I think anything that comes at a great book with the understanding of like, Oh, I already know all that, right? Or I've mastered that. It doesn't have the certain humility and openness I think one has to have when setting themselves before someone like Homer, right? There's, there is a reason, you know, this book is what, like 850 BC is when Homer is. So this is, you know, here we are in 2023, right. still reading this text, right? right? He has something to teach the West. So no, I, I think this is my uh, third or fourth read through, um, and I love it. And I, I think that every time there's layers that are being pulled back and you're grasping things and you're seeing things that you didn't see before. So I think there's always something to learn. And I appreciate the group because I think the group challenges me. It's like, you know, there's like details. I mean, it probably happened today on the podcast. There are details that I, I, I really have not paid attention to. Right. Right. And so either someone challenges me on that and then I have to go look it up or be like, well, actually, I don't know what he's talking about there. Right. Because sometimes we just get tired of looking up all the details. Um, right. So I think I think it's challenging to read it in a group. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So um, let's get let's jump into book four. Yeah, so book four, so kind of where we are in Iliad as a whole, we had our opener, which is, you know, drawn from our guide. The first question in every book is just like, what happened? Let's just make sure we understood the literal, just narrative of the text uh, and provide a little summary. You know, so what we saw last time in book three is there was this big duel, right? So you had mm-hmm. Menelaus, you had Paris, and... Uh, so frustrating. <laughs> so frustrating. Yeah, so Paris... Um, you know, we, I, I think we mentioned it last time, but you and I were talking about it offline too, right? This idea that the gods come down and just swoop someone up 
or come and like resolve a situation. Like some people, and I think you're in this camp, find that very frustrating, right? In the text. Right. We'll and, get more into that in a few future book. I have more things to say about that. Right. Yeah. So it, because unfortunately it happens uh, multiple times, right. right? So now we're kind of left in this, what does this mean? So this is what book four really opens up into is like, what does this mean? Does this mean that the Argives think they've won? Right. And, that, and that's really where we are, right? Is that basically Agamemnon, you know, is basically declaring, you know, victory, like, you know, we have this, like, this is over, et cetera. Right. I mean, we could probably challenge how much he believes that, but that's really the opening of where we are, right? Sure. And is the truce going to uh, endure? Uh, since we're on book four and there's 24 books, it's probably a safe bet that the answer is no, no. It's right? A pr- it's a pretty big book, so I'm, I'm yeah. banking no. So, what I mean, kind of as an opener, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to hear from you yeah. as a kind of a first-time reader is, because uh, this book, towards the end, really gets into a lot of the warfare, right? There's a lot of this person fought this person, and they they dragged mm-hmm. their body, and they got their armor. And, and by book, you mean book four, meaning like the chapter right. four, not the whole book. Right, not the whole poem. So what do you, just like kind of like a raw take as you read through this the first time, what do you make of like the warfare? Yeah, so I think we've talked about before the importance of marking up the book, right? And, and making notes and, and uh, you know, like writing out kind of what's happening and making sure you're tracking the narrative and things like that. As you get into the warfare, I get excited. I'm like, okay, who's going to win? Like mm-hmm. who's fighting? And then you realize it's not, it's not a big picture fight. You know, it typically goes down to a, a narrow, like this person versus this person. Right. And they get like Homer gives a very descriptive a lot of times of, of the of the uh, uh, of the fighters, mm-hmm. and then you're like, okay, we're investing, we're investing in this person. We're, we're, we don't even know like what color his tassels are, or right. you know what he looks or like, or what his like grandfather's name was, or his right. great grandfather. Yeah, like his and, genealogy. You know, right. you're looking at like we're investing in a whole paragraph here, so. Let me pay attention. I'm, I'm like marking him, like boxing out this this character, making sure that I understand. And then he dies, and then he just <laughs> dies. You know, like and then he gets a spear straight straight to the jugular or straight right. you know straight to the nipple or whatever it is, and um and he dies. Mm-hmm. So I had to maybe uh, temper myself in my in my note taking as we go through, especially when it gets like to to the uh, bloodlusts of different parts of of, of the battles because. It's just this person, and then he dies. This person, and then he dies. And um, again, Homer's writing to aristocrats, right? So yeah, the, the no, genealogy good. is important for those people. For, for me, I don't really know who any of those people but I, are. No, but I think that's, that's a key thing to the why, right? So you're correct. Here's a narrative. It invests in a character. Like, here's these two guys. You know, so we have this kind of you know, thing where there's like the two lines of the army are lined up. And then seemingly, it just seems like all else kind of fades away mm-hmm. and two guys you know sometimes it's explicit that they step out into no man's land right uh but then other times it's like aren't we just having a giant war between like thousands of people and these yeah, two people are, these are like doing? like standing up and having like this dialogue of like who's your dad and where do you come from yeah. and you know and i i think but you've hit the nail on the head which is the investment into the characters here and explaining this type of warfare is is really appealing to his 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 audience right his historical audience of these aristocratic Greeks that would have been related to these people and saying, oh, okay, who won and who did this? And this is a point of honor or a point of shame, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. their families. So what, what really caught me, too, the first time I read it was not only the individualistic fighting, and, and that was the thing, too, of like, why, why are we investing so much into these characters? Right. But also the looting. Oh, uh, right? yes. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Like, there were several times when it's like, okay, good. 
he won. Like I was kind of rooting for whichever guy guy wins, and he immediately runs to go get the armor off the other guy. And I'm like, hey, bro, like, <laughs> uh, he, his blood is still warm. You know, right. like chill out for a second. So isn't he like right next to like ten thousand other Trojans? Exactly. Like, yeah. And then like he, you know, because he he goes and does that, he get, he, he catches an, an arrow to the head or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. he ends up dying. And it's like, man, if you would have just waited fifteen minutes, let everything kind of calm down for a second, and then run over there, right? Maybe that'd have been a little bit more prudent. You know, maybe we should have thought this through. But so it's like a ne- there's like a next layer of like glory, right? That not only you took down the son of so and so, right? But then you also have his armor. His armor, right? Sure. I think. I mean, that's so. I think we can have a work. Let's just kind of build into a working understanding of this. Okay. I think that's one side of it. It's just the sheer glory, right? And you'll see this because sometimes like. Can you just hold on though for a few minutes to get the glory? Like, right. can, like that's not how glory works, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, but it's just like, man, you can have a lot more glory when you're alive. Because you see, you'll see this several times. Um, an example doesn't occur to me, but you'll see where like Diomedes or someone else will come forward and it will mention that like the armor he has or the chariot he has, etc., is actually so and so's that he already has from a raid that was actually given from the gods, right? I mean, you're right. bringing this like whole like ensemble that everything is part of your fame, your glory, your honor. Mm-hmm. I think that's certainly part of it. Um, part of it too is like we've seen with the guest friendship, right? The giving of gifts, right? You have all these magnificent things. And then like when you're the host or you're the guest, you have these things to exchange. I mm-hmm. think that uh, comes into that. The other thing too that we say, see at the end of this book, book four, uh, was just actually the practical thing of resupplying, right? right. These ships show up right, to the, all the Greeks that are here on the beaches, and they have to resupply uh, their uh, provisions, et cetera, and they have to have something to trade, right? right. And so now you're like, oh, look, I've got this, this armor, I've got these things. Yeah, it's a, it's a source of wealth, right? It's a source right. of, uh, uh, it's a commodity, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think the um, the individualistic warfare, I think is, is it's probably fair to say it's, it's very poetic uh, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think that the... That, that the warfare would have been much more organized, right? That you would have had, like... Because that's what's something that struck me. There's no, There seems to be no strategy to this. It's just like, right. all right, everyone line up and start, you know, taunting someone until you decide to fight Run someone, right? Yeah. And, you know, see someone whose grandfather you can insult and then just go for it, right? Right, right. And so, you know, I think that you know, most people say, no, the, overall, there was a lot more strategic warfare. There's a lot more group warfare. There might have been... If you're familiar with like a phalanx, like this this big kind of square, heavy infantry, spears, you know, where there's like these row of warriors that are actually supporting each other that's hard to break through. Right, there's like shield walls. Right, like that. there's probably some early phalanx action going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so just, I, I think it's just something that usually strikes first-time readers is the warfare. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. okay, so looking into kind of the text itself... Um, so as we kind of gave our narrative, it opens up with Zeus and Zeus is being very Zeus here, right? Cause he's basically opening up taunting, uh, Hera, right? About the fact that Zeus is going to support this truce. Now we know, cause we're kind of it's paying a healthy attention. marriage. It's a- they are really just charming. <laughs> They're a charming couple. So he, he's, he's sitting here, you know, uh, basically this is a bit of theater as we said in the opening, cause he's already promised certain things to Thetis. Right, and that's why keeping the promises in mind is so important in the Iliad because it kind of allows you to understand what's actually happening, right? So is Zeus really debating here that he's going to allow this war to end in a truce after we've seen so much about the fated doom of Troy? Right. No. Right. But even Hera can't take it, 
Right. She's still, Athena might be quiet, but then Hera's still going to boil over with rage. And it leads to this like really interesting dialogue between Zeus and Hera, uh, basically again getting into one of these narratives of like, you know, and this is around, you know, 40, right? Hera breaks out around 30. Zeus is answering her a little bit shy of 40, in which he's basically saying like, you can't do anything anyway. But then he, like, if we talk about how fickle the gods are, there's like two things I want to point out here. One is that Zeus basically says, one, by the way, Troy is actually like my favorite city. And this is at, what is this, like 55 or so? He says, I honor sacred Ilium most with my immortal heart. Mm-hmm. So here's, a, just keep in mind, like all these people that think they're honoring the gods and this will give them the gods protection and all these things. And here's Zeus that has basically faded Troy to destruction, also saying, by the way, I love Troy the most. Assuming, right, we could challenge that notion. Mm-hmm. Assuming he's not saying this just, to, just to annoy Hera. Right. Right. Because then Hera responds, I mean, we, again, kind of just fickle layer upon fickle layer, right? She just says, what? Hey, here's all the things I love. I love right. Argos. Yeah. I love Sparta. Burn them, right? Just raise them to the ground if it means that Troy uh, will fall. It seems like a high school. Like I was reading this, and I was like, "Man, this is like a high school relationship. Like it, these are like two like two high school kids getting uh, mad at each other and going back and forth." Well, I hate them. These people. I'll I'll burn my whole, you know, house to the ground if it means you don't get what you want. You know, it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah, we you know we talked about this too in our uh, Sunday great books. Just people kind of who really are only used to the Christian tradition, and so their understanding of God, right? This that this pure act. This, you know, this perfect, mm-hmm. right, being itself. And then you contrast this with these gods that aren't even, wouldn't even be that good of humans, right? right? I mean, they're just, they're so narcissistic. They're, they're um, you know, mentally imploded. Mm-hmm. They're constantly just focusing on themselves. They're very easily taunted. Mm-hmm. Into, I mean, their passions just run wild. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is, this is divinity, right, and for the Greeks. fooled at times. Yeah, yeah, I mean that because I think that right passions typically blind you, right? So they tend to make a lot of mistakes. So what's really important here in this section, I think, is is we're kind of tracking things, um, oaths, promises, commands. Because remember, Zeus's will cannot be foiled. So when he says go do X, Y, and Z, this is going to happen. We need to keep track of it. Mm-hmm. It might not always happen the way we think it is. But a little after eighty, right? He he kind of relents and says, "Okay, Athena, you can go down and break the truce." Right. And it's twofold, right? See that the Trojans break the truce, the sworn truce first, and trample on the Argives in their triumph, right? So that that Troy is going to break the truce, but then Troy needs to triumph against the Argives. Now that second leg of that, right, matches up with what he promised Athetis. And that's what we're seeing played out here, right? Achilles' mother, the sea nymph, um, that, you know, she's doing this because her boy's crying by his ships, mm-hmm. because they need, he, he would be okay with his countrymen being slaughtered as long as it shows that they can't do this without him. Again, going back to a conversation about glory and right. fame, right? So that's one of the things we have to track is, is Zeus. So then we get um, just a shy above line 90. We get Kronos mentioned again. Mm-hmm. Kronos with all his turning, twisting ways. Yeah, and so who who's as just a refresher, who's Kronos? 
No, I'm going to ask you that question. Who's oh, crown? Okay. We talked about last time. Who's crown? Oh. So this is like your. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. This I is your. Utah, Utah, yeah, this is yeah. This is, yeah, this is this is the Ascend yeah. Great Books podcast quiz time. So we yeah. talked about this last time. So right. do you remember who Kronos is? Yeah. So Kronos is Zeus's father, who mm-hmm. uh, Zeus kills or doesn't kill. See, this is this is a question that I had as I was reading through this for the first time because they talk about deathless gods and, and they talk mm-hmm. about mortals and they talk. You know, they're they're fighting each other, but they're not really killing each other at times. And so I was trying to wrap my mind around like, okay, do they actually die? Do they actually like cease to exist? Are they annihilated whenever they're fighting? Like, how does this work? Because, you know, Kronos, you know, Zeus kills Kronos, his father, mm-hmm. or in whatever did, word you probably, want to use. Probably dethrones him. Dethrones him. But, yeah. um, and then they, and they talk here in book, uh, in this book, in like around 35 or so, it talks about the deathless gods. And so I'm like trying to figure out in my mind, like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, I think that sometimes, um, typically I would say, no, they don't die. So Kronos, right, is a titan, um, but they're, they're the same principle, right, applies. It's just a different species? I don't know. How, um, yeah, they're just distinct from the Olympian gods, right? Okay. And so the Titans are like this kind of first wave of divinity, if you want to call them that, right? Coming from uh, Uranus and Gaia, okay. uh, the earth and the sky, basically, right? right? These kind of fundamental um, elements of life. I did a good job not laughing that You time. did. You did wonderful. Was you much, was, I was. I was, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, the, <clears throat> the sky god, yeah. right? We're just going to... So anyway, <laughs> that's good. Um, speaking of maturation. So, but... Usually what happens is typically is they are thrown into the pit, into Tartarus. They're, they're banished, etc. Kronos is interesting because, uh, like we mentioned last time, so Zeus comes back, right? He slices Kronos open. Um, that's a good example, right? They don't die when Kronos eats his children, right? They're just all inside waiting to be free. Yeah, that's a good Zeus, point. Zeus sure. comes in, saves them all. That, that group um, overthrows the Titans. They become the Olympian gods. Um, Cronus is interesting though, because then there's like one side of the mythology is that basically he leaves Greece and, uh, he gets picked up by Rome and the Romans, uh, refer to him as Saturn and he becomes, he becomes highly associated actually with time in the seasons. So actually Kronos, like chronology Okay. Right, so like oh, time, okay. yeah, right? Yeah. So there's an etymology there. So actually, one of the things that I love about reading great books is it starts to show I love you bugs, bugs, entomology, entomology, etymology. Very good. Sorry, um, I was just joking. That was a bad joke. It's okay. Well, everyone will judge you. So one of the things I I love about the great books is simply like, yeah, it shows you all these little things of like little touch points on our culture. Like, oh, this mm-hmm. is where this comes from, or this is what that word means, right? Etymology. That's yeah, thanks. And um, so Cronus is the same, like what, yes, you have like chronology and like he's associated with time, the seasons. Uh, he gets known as Saturn, uh, Saturnalia in Rome becomes like a very big uh, festival that they have, right? That's the one that people try to associate, I think, with Christmas a lot. Um, the other thing too is that this is where Saturday comes from, right? Saturday is the ah, day of Saturn, okay? Right? Yeah. So just like a quick cultural like reference point, like the the um, days of the week. So you have Sunday, which is named after the sun god. Yeah, just the sun, right? The sun. It's named after sun. Monday is wait. Na- it's not the sun god. Like it's not Apollo. Well, or? it's it's just named. Most people will just say it's named after the sun because then Monday is named after Who's a Prometheus. The mu- Would that be the Roman. No, Prometheus is a uh, one of the Titans. 
the Greek See, Titans. I'm terrible with mythology. It's okay. But so we'll I'm work working, through it. I'm working through it. You're All doing right. great. Um, so we have Sunday's named after the sun. Monday is named after the moon, right? So those two kind of correspond. Okay. Tuesday, though, is named after Tyr, which is actually a Norse... Uh, a figure from Norse mythology. So it's not actually not all Greek. Wednesday is probably the most obscure because Wednesday comes from Woden, which is a different pronunciation of Odin, Odin okay. right? Which is again, another Norse, Norse, yeah, kind of the Zeus figure in Norse mythology. Thursday is Thor's day, right? Mm-hmm. Thor, again, from um, uh, Norse mythology. So is Friday. Friday is uh, from Freya, if I remember correctly, right? A goddess of love, an Aphrodite figure in the Norse mythology. Um, there's a lot of things you can tie together there about Friday being a day of love and Friday being the day that Christ died, right? That there's this, that day was already set aside for a day of love, right? And then that leads us back into Saturday, which is named after Saturn, right? So this whole like rich, like where the days of the week come from, right? A lot of this is pulling actually from a Greek mythology and also Norse mythology as well. I dig. Yeah. So, and probably lastly, just to point out, because the other character we're tracking pretty heavily throughout this is Odysseus. So mm-hmm. notice that Kronos uh, has a very similar uh, epithet as Odysseus does, right? The, with all his turning and twisting ways. Odysseus is the man of twists and turns, right? So there's this like similar thing. Yeah, that's a good track. Like it's, that's good to, to remember when it talked about that in their relationship. Yeah, so it's good to kind of keep these in mind and also watch how Homer uses these epithets like to kind of um, show us the character of someone I think so we have this where as we mentioned um, okay so the Athena comes down Pandarus poor Pandarus right he's the archer he's on the Trojan side Athena comes down you know hey like everyone's going to love you you'd win fame in all the uh, eyes of the Trojans especially Paris which does not like I, I don't understand that Maybe I maybe there, there, obviously there's probably some relational connection I'm missing, but most of the Trojans hate Paris. Mm-hmm. It actually mentioned in last book that even if Paris was actually like, it actually says that they knew no one w- that Paris wasn't hiding amongst the Trojans because no one would have hid him from Menelaus. Mm-hmm. Like they do not like him. Right. Right. And but here it's just interesting that they, that she says most of all, uh, Paris, yeah. yeah, Prince pa- Paris most of all. Yeah. So part of her rhetoric is is you'll win fame, and obviously what she's. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I just took that as um, him or her just selling it, right? Mm-hmm. Like even even some of the, the the prince of this whole place, most of all, will love you. Yeah. I mean, it could that, be. It's just, it was just an interesting point of rhetoric yeah, that I, I noted. Why not? So this is the temptation of him, right? So basically the temptation here is to really break the truce. So there's an argument here that the Trojans really haven't broken it yet because Aphrodite taking um, uh, Paris away right, is basically a forfeiture, and so the Argives have won. But now, because under Zeus's command, Athena is going to make sure everyone knows that it's the Trojans that actually break the truce. Right. So Pandarus, who just, we should note, uh, he's an archer. He can't, <clears throat> notice he actually, because Athena doesn't come to him, she comes under the guise of another Trojan. He can't see that it's Athena. One of the things that we're tracking, too, is who has the maturity or the gift um, to be able to recognize when the gods are acting upon them, mm-hmm. right? Which is somewhat of a perennial question, right? How, do, how does mankind, how does the human heart uh, become sensitive to the fact that the divinity, the divine, is moving and impressing upon them, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is something that's important for our spiritual lives. Important. It's, I mean, it's a perennial question, I think, in the West, right? How do we see these things? 
how do we have that spiritual, you know, interior life? Right. Uh, Pandarus does not have this. He he lacks the maturity to, to discern the voice of Athena. You know, and so he's going to go for it. Uh, I did notice that uh, his cohorts. It's a, a little after one thirty. Hide him. So it like it's kind of a group effect here. Like they they see what he's going to do, and apparently they they think this is a good a good idea, right? Let's do this. They hide him behind their shields to wedge him. You know these kind of things. So he fires an arrow off. He hits Menelaus. Athena, though, right, because she's kind of orchestrating this whole thing, makes it where it's a non-mortal wound. And so Menelaus is hit. You know, um, but doesn't he think that he, he smokes him? Doesn't he think like he he's going to kill Menelaus with that hit? Yeah, I think so. Um, let's see if we can find a good textual reference for that, because this tends to be a thing for Pandarus, where he thinks that he's done more than he actually has. So we might be able to find it in here. In the interim, uh, Menelaus, right, he's got fresh blood uh, straining down um, his sturdy thighs, his shins and ankles. So then you get <laughs> so you get Agamemnon's response, which I remember they're brothers, right? right? And it's really funny because you could really judge this section like 170 and on. Because he's like, look, they've broken the truce. So this this is very clear. It has the effect, right? So around 180, look how the men of Troy have laid you low, trampling down our solemn binding truce, right? This is a truce they made to Zeus. This is a truce that was backed by oaths to the gods. Um, you know, and then Agamemnon basically, you know, is kind of already putting Menelaus in the ground here, right? Um, and then you kind of read this, and it's not, he's not really worried about Menelaus. He's worried about, you know, will the men change their mind now that you're dead, right? Because what, what's the problem here? If Menelaus dies, right? Well, the, the main claim here is that they're at war because of Helen. If you remember, we talked about the oath, right, right that they had all made. Right. Like, she's, right. she's you know, incredibly beautiful, so they all made this oath, and now that's why they're all here, at least on some kind of pretext. You know, is Agamemnon really worried about Menelaus' his brother, or is he worried that, like, oh, my gosh, this if you die, brother, you'll demotivate the men, right? Right. And, and like, we won't be able to fight. Yeah, he, he even has to say, like, yeah, because King Agamemnon gives this, like, terrible, like, buzzkill of a death speech. <laughs> you know, it's just like, this, this is just ridiculous. And then right. Menelaus is like, brother, this point's not lodged in a mortal spot. You see, like, I'm not going to die. It's right. Like, Menelaus is, like, throwing dirt on his, you know, burying him alive almost. He's like, I'm not dead. Right. So then he calls for the healer. Um, you know, he's, he's Menelaus is going to be fine. Um, but King Agamemnon never wastes an opportunity in chaos. No, he does not. And I, and you'll see this too. I mean, how he treats Menelaus, I think, uh, a lot of times is running ear interference so Menelaus doesn't get himself killed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one thing to note, just, just a little after 250, um, that I just found really interesting as I read through this, is you would kind of think like, so this happens, right? So every, all the armies are lined up, right? Because they had just had this duel. So this is actually a real scenario in which everyone is lined up, it actually, says, yeah, it actually says they took off their war gear, right? Like, they're all sitting here. Everyone just saw what Pandarus did. It, it was striking to me, and I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's an immature view, or maybe I'm, I'm not being observant, but, like, it just kind of struck me, like, why doesn't, like, Hector stand up and be like, no, 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 wait, wait, like, we're not... Like, there's none of that. Does yeah. this make sense? Like, so Pandarus does this. Everyone, like, this is about, this, this is about to go into chaos, Right, mm-hmm. we're about to go right back into bloodshed. Right, it just it and just their leader's nowhere to be found. Yeah, it struck me as odd. 
um, that like, it's just an impression, but it struck me as odd that Hector doesn't like run out. And I mean, I don't know, offer Pandarus to them and say, listen, yeah, take this dude. just take him. Like, you know, no, this is not us. I don't support this. This isn't us. Like, that was don't not do a command this. from me. Right. Like, we, this is not Troy. Like, we don't break our oaths. Right. Like, have him. Yeah, I agree. There's been several times uh, throughout the book thus far where I, I feel like there's a pivotal point or like this, this climactic point. And for whatever reason, Hector is nowhere to be found. Or he says the wrong thing at the wrong... Th- anyway, I think that... That that's a good that's a good point because where yeah. where Hector, is he? And Hector, I think, will be critiqued on that sometimes. I mean, I think he's a very virtuous character, as we'll see. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he's I not without his fault. Yeah, right. Him. I don't think he's without his fault. So then we kind of get into the end of here, which is Agamemnon marshaling the troops. It says his hour had come. So he kind of goes through all the main guys that you would expect: Ajax, Nestor, you know, your boy, yeah, uh, the old war horse, right? Um, such yeah. a great name. And um, he is like a veteran, like that's in a, like a locker room giving like the old time <laughs> speeches of, you know, uh, right. Back I mean, he is day. that I mean, he's again, tracking Nestor, right? He's he's the oldest war chief. Mm-hmm. Um, he And he's a link. I think most importantly, he's a link to a prior age. That was greater. Yeah, that was that these that these guys, their their fathers and forefathers were greater men than they were. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they could lift these heavy boulders. They could do these things, um, you know. And so he, he really is this link to a more mythical past. He knew some of these great heroes uh, before Troy, right? Theseus, right. Perseus, uh, Hercules or Heracles. He, you know, these are people that, you know, he was closer to. Mm. And they were real heroes, right? These, these great heroes prior, uh, Bellerophon would have been in there, right? These great heroes prior to Troy. So he's, I mean, he's just a good character. Um, you know, he gives a lot of advice. We could, we can judge. You know, how, if it's good or not, how prudent it is, but yeah. he's he's just he has a, a unique uh, um, kind of background, if you will. So then we get to Odysseus, which he's is probably one tactician. of the right, which is probably one again as we kind of parse out who he is. Yeah, he's the great tactician. So anyway, he gets critiqued here, um, you know, basically for cowering, right? And so this is this is around a little after three ninety. This is Agamemnon, right? Because Agamemnon's running around. Saying, "Hey, we're, we've got to get the battle. Like here he's we like go." He's like even calling out Odysseus's troops, right? Like he's mm-hmm. summoning all the troops. Like I thought that was a little weird reading it for the first time. Like how bold and how prideful it was, even though he is king. Like I get it, but to call out Odysseus's troops to get ready without even talking to Odysseus first. I don't know what the chain of command is. Obviously, right. he's at the top, but <clears throat> it would seem that as a good leader, you'd be like the the ranks right below you, the the other kings. Uh, you'd be like, hey guys, we're gonna go to war. Get your troops ready. Not, right. not calling them out yourself. Well, he just really like so. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's after three ninety, he says, um, and you, the captain of craft and cunning, shrewd with greed. Why are you cowering here, skulking out of range, waiting for others to do your fighting for you? Right. So he's he's so this great tactician Odysseus. He's basically critiquing and saying, hey, your your tactics here are self serving. Mm-hmm. Right, you're yes, yes. You have this great tactician's mind. You're a mastermind like Zeus, right? There's a deep connection between Athena and Odysseus, and here he's being critiqued of like, actually, your tacti- you know, your tactics here, uh, your mastery is self-serving. Mm-hmm. Odysseus doesn't go well for this, right? It says he gave the great tactician Odysseus gave him a dark glance. I love this next line too. I, I thought that was, we'll go back, go for it. Yeah, I, I love where he says, "Now what's this, Atreides?" this talk that slips through your clenched teeth. Like I can just like mm-hmm. see him just like even clenching his teeth as he's talking about. It. I just thought that was like so descriptive and uh, I, I really dug it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, t- he basically calls him a hypocrite too, right? right? You take the time and why don't you taste some action, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, then Agamemnon kind of, um, I would say he kind of softens yeah, a he, touch, he, yeah. right? We'll see eye to eye, you know, if any offense is passed yeah, between us now. he walks it back now, a little bit. Yeah, I think he does. So, you know, he cocks out Diomedes, um, which is another, um, you know, primary character. We're about to go into a wonderful uh, book. Book five features Diomedes, so we, we'll kind of parse him out there. Um, then there's a interesting line down here. So around 500, mm-hmm. we've been tracking things with Homer on these epithets, right? These little lines that were particularly um, useful for oral poetry, right? These these bards, right? So again, a tactician like um, Odysseus is, a mastermind like Zeus, Lord of the War Cry, you know these, you know the High King of Men, like all these things that they have. But he also, I think, another thing to do is to watch his metaphors. So he gives a really, I mean, I, so I found it to be bizarre Okay. metaphor after 500. So here it is. We just had Agamemnon marshalling all his troops. Mm-hmm. Everyone get ready. Here comes the bloodlust. Like, we're going to destroy Troy. Then after 500, it shifts to the Trojans. Okay, so what are the Trojans going to do, right? Are they marshalling the troops? <clears throat> and so here comes uh, Homer's description. But not the Trojans, no. Like flocks of sheep and a wealthy rancher's steadings, thousands crowding to have their white milk drained, bleeding nonstop <laughs> when they hear their crying lambs. So those shouts rose up from the long Trojan lines, and not one cry, no common voice to bind them. Mm-hmm. So two things on this. I, I just don't know. I mean, I don't think our cultures have changed that much, right? Humans are humans. I, I seriously doubt that a a uh, bunch of, you know, ewes whose breasts are swollen with uh, milk who think they hear their lambs, like an army crying out like that is overly fearsome. Right. 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 So what is he doing here? Right. Because I, I think, again, if we, uh, again, we approach Homer as a teacher, we approach him as, uh, you know, he's his own mastermind, his own genius uh, of, of telling the story of Troy, you know, because you can oversee this, oh, that's silly, that's dumb and move on. I think another thing here too, and I think we're going to see a pattern, is that he's going to associate the Trojans time and time again with sheep, mm-hmm. and I, I think this very much is sheep to the slaughter, right? So here's this, this what should be this fierce battle lines that are being drawn, which it also says in, in, in that very text is, is no common voice to bind them. Yeah, how did you read that? Like I thought, well, I took that as a slight to Hector. Yeah, I but, was like, uh, again, it kind of came back to, okay, well, where's where's their leader? Like, why is there not one, one guy coming out and, and giving the rally cry? Uh, it kind of goes goes to show like he's nowhere to be found. Yeah, I mean, I think you could you could make a note here. Um, yeah, they have no shepherd. Right. Right. Which so they're sheep. The they're sheep without a shepherd. Right. Right. Is is I think that if we're yeah. gonna dig into this metaphor, um, yeah, there's no shepherd for them. So then we do get, I mean, it kind of ends, uh, the book kind of um, wraps up here now with like the battle starts over again. So we get this guy is going to kill this guy, and here's where we are. So here we kind of get into that unique battling, right, mm-hmm. that we've seen kind of go uh, back and forth. I think the one thing, though, to note, just kind of like a architectonic kind of looking back, and can, instead of getting into each individual battle, is Athena was told to do two things, right? One, Troy needs to break the truce. Now, that coincides with Athena's own interests, right? Because right. that would be anti-Troy. 
However, the second one was that then Troy was supposed to triumph over the Argives. Mm-hmm. And here comes Athena blessing the Argives, and they're actually pushing now up against Troy, these bleeding sheep, mm-hmm. right? So we should what should be happening here, what we're trying to notice is, if we're tracking Zeus, is, okay, there's an Argive momentum here, but why are the, tri- why are the Trojans not triumphing? Why are the Trojans not pushing back? Which is right. what they should be doing right now. Right. And so that kind of leads us into... Uh, book five, mm-hmm. uh, with the kind of anticipation of like, shouldn't Troy be turning this around? Uh, yeah, and a, a, again, as they're, th- it's the whole litany of different people dying. I, I love how Homer always describes death of a, mm-hmm. a, a of some kind of uh, <coughs> uh, guy. You mm-hmm. know, you just continue to hear. I, I love his descriptions of what death really is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he so, loosed his limbs is right, one of my he favorite loosed ones. His limbs. Yeah, I mean, there's several of them. The, the dart came swirling down across his eyes. I think he uses that twice uh, on page 162. I just, I, I love tracking that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Good. Anything else on book four? No, I think I think book four was was good, but book five is going to take some some digging into. Yeah. All right. All right. Very good. All right. Follow us on social media. Take a picture of, of your small group. Send it to us. We'd love to would love to see it. Check us out at thegreatbookspodcast.com. All right. See you next week. See you.